Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Alex. Hello. Uh, yeah, so we've got some interesting stuff on the board today. Uh, in the news, we're looking at 10 emerging technologies. Uh, then we're joined by our first of two guests. This is an Atlas Podcast first. Uh, by our colleague, Neil Clark, who's going to talk with us about GitOps. And then later on, we have an interview with Darren Williams of uh, the International Welding Center, is it? TWI. TWI, the Welding (laughs) Institute. The Welding Institute. These acronyms, they always get me. Well, he's also uh, involved with some other things as well um, with Lancaster University. So uh, I'm sure he'll tell us more about it. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Okay, so uh, this was uh, the 10 emerging technologies was something you found, and it's from uh, the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum, and it's 10 technologies that are emerging, soon to come up, or extensions of things uh, that exist already that they think, I guess, is uh, are big things to look out for. Um, so should we just run through the 1 to 10 and then maybe pick out a couple we want to discuss more in depth? Yeah, so this report was out in November this year. Um, the World Economic Forum released a lot of these types of reports and also have these uh, sustainability development goals. So it's all very, um, you know, trying to keep the world together and pointing in the right direction. Um, I guess this is a bit more of a futuristic um, uh article on on what technologies could um change our world in the future there's a bit of futurology as i yes. think it's called yes yeah so number one on their list is micro needles for painless injections and tests so i guess i mean that's pretty self-explanatory mm-hmm. um we also have sun-powered chemistry or solar-powered chemistry uh, number three is virtual patients. So I assume that's yeah, distance patienting. So you can uh, you can do your GPing from uh, from another location. I think it's a build upon, isn't it, from what we're seeing with some of the COVID apps and things like that. I'm a bit sceptical about some of those. You know, it still requires a lot of um, understanding of the person um, and sitting in front of you a bit. So maybe things like the uh, um, spatial computing, the VR, uh, AR type of thing might also help with the virtual patient. Who knows? And that was yeah, number well, these, four. That's number four. And then number five, digital medicine, using apps and mm-hmm. uh, software as monitoring. And um, I know it's very useful in mental health practice and stuff. I guess those three sort of come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have electric aviation, uh, which I'm sure I saw things previously of the first electric plane and they didn't look like they were ready to carry passengers around the world but perhaps that's where we're heading mm-hmm. uh we've got low carbon lower carbon cement which thrilling of course and well, it's uh, the biggest one of the biggest co2 producers isn't it um cement um, manufacturing of cement is a it's a big producer of carbon yes as i understand it even when you when you come to green energy production the biggest uh or you still get a large carbon footprint because construction uh produces a lot of carbon i guess that's mm. one element of it yeah uh, uh number eight is quantum sensing so that's using quantum activity as a marker for sensors to read uh 
Nine is green hydrogen, so that's a means of uh, extracting hydrogen uh, for energy production, which, as I understand it, once you've got the hydrogen, is very green. It only produces water, I think, as a byproduct. Mm -hmm. uh, and number 10 is whole genome synthesis, which I have no knowledge of, but it sounds fantastic. Well, it doesn't seem that's it's not too dis dissimilar to what we were talking about last week with the uh, protein um, foldings AI stuff. So I think it's a, there's a lot of lot in that area, isn't there? A lot of movement in the um, now with the human genome and all of the um, treatments that can come out of that. So I guess this is going beyond that and being able to. Um, engineer super deluxe stuff <laughs> yeah the next whole step. genome sequencing who knows and then i assume next year jurassic park probably yes i guess that's where it's heading that's where it always ends doesn't it when we start <laughs> talking about that so so is there any particular ones you were uh, that caught your fancy there alex for sure I, well yeah i think uh the electric aviation i know our company and our parent company worked a lot in aviation, so it's interesting to to consider the idea that an electric plane, a, a serviceable electric plane, could be somewhere down the road. Yeah, so yeah, we obviously we do a fair bit of work in the aerospace industry, um, and uh, obviously with what's happened with COVID, the aerospace industry has been um, affected a lot, and we're using the kind of traditional approaches of, yeah, gas. Gas turbine type of technologies for propulsion. Um, mm -hmm. This is really much uh, looking what's possible um, around that, and now that, that's still with that impression that air travel um, is still going to grow and could triple by 2050. It doesn't feel like that at the moment, but I'm sure as soon as we can all get back on a plane, um, things will start changing in that direction. And as we've seen. Uh, you know, air travel does um, admit something around this, what we're saying here about the 2.35% of the global carbon emissions. Um, mm. So we have seen a reduction in that because of the impact of COVID, uh, but not maybe as dramatic as people thought. So there's still a lot of stuff that's producing carbon out there. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting to think about. They were talking about being able to reduce um, fuel costs by ninety percent, maintenance by fifty, um, and uh, near noise by seventy percent. So um, these things are being worked on by the the, the big companies uh, like Airbus and the like. Um, and I know our um, friends at Rolls Royce. They're also looking at these types of things and how they can support that. The um, aerospace supply chain, looking at the future. Um, capabilities there so yeah there's a few things out there i think as you said there's already some um electric planes um the shorter distances and um um not so much of the load that you would have thought with the conventional ones but the fact that they're looking at this um must be they're taking it seriously i think there must be a whole load of different technology um that we're talking about so if you look at that needs still to be invented to make this feasible. So, mm. um, you know, if you look at the um, the power density uh, of a battery um, compared to a, a jet engine or the fuel going into a jet engine, then they're, they're not anywhere near 
you know, the orders of magnitude difference. So yeah. still a lot of work to be done in that area. So as with everything electric, it really starts to come back down to the battery technologies that are available. Um, to, to uh, Yeah, I guess you need something that's it's light enough that it doesn't affect the overall weight, but also can carry a huge amount of charge. So there's yeah some mm -hmm. sort of leap that needs to be taken. And then, yeah, getting that energy into a propulsion system. Is there anything out there yet that can produce the same sort of thrust as a, a jet engine? Yeah, well, you look at that yeah. energy density here is 250 uh, watt hours with conventional technology, uh, sorry, battery technology compared with 12,000 watt hours um, for jet fuel. So, like I said, orders of magnitude difference at the moment, but then... Um, you know, this is what this is about, looking at future emerging technologies. Um, and it slightly leads you on to that kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen them, the hype curve, the Gartner hype curves they talk about with the technology. Um, mm -hmm. you, it, a lot of these technologies follow the same pattern. There's a lot of hype to begin with, then there's a bit of a trough of delusionment, delusion, <laughs> and then you come back to some kind of level of normality. Um, I think some of these bigger challenges it's going to take lots of different technologies to be, you know, to come together um, to make it possible. But um, that's it, and it'll probably be a breakthrough in another area that then feeds back and enables, yeah, a big leap forward here. It's going to be incremental changes in different areas, isn't it? That are going to culminate in, uh, in an improvement. Um, I think rarely do we see huge jumps in technology. Um, obviously. When we put our mind to it, we can but as, a, as a race. But um, I think with battery technology, we've been plowing that far for quite a while. So um, um, it, it tends to be more incremental at the moment. Mm. Is there anything on the list that you're uh, excited about? Anything that you've got your eye on? Well, um, the, the, obviously, quantum always brings up some questions because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of hype around quantum and things like that. But um, yeah, you know, I just if you want really... to hype a hyper film, throw quantum in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Massive um, ticket sales, na nanobots and quantum and all this <laughs> type of thing. Um, so yeah, this it's an interesting article. This one talking about. Uh, quantum sensors um, and what the capabilities of these quantum sensors are and it's kind of back to sensing technologies are all about sensing the world and the world around us so if we can um, sense at a quantum level all the yeah, all the quantum particles obviously then that gives us a whole different um, world of uh of visibility that we don't have you know that us as humans only have so many senses mm -hmm. um, uh, and we rely on a lot of tooling and instrumentation to um, understand the um, our, understand our world um, and I guess if we can start to bring quantum sensing into our everyday lives um, and here it's talking about having quantum um, sensors uh, that can be um, basically mounted on uh, on silicon chips and this type of thing so getting really down to very small sensing devices that can sense the world around it um when you bring those two things together quantum sensing and um uh, our, our processing power or even maybe quantum computing uh, that mm. goes along with that um, uh, who knows what can do i think is there anything there that you thought was a, an yeah, application I think that you thought 
But well, one thing they mentioned was uh, it seems a very practical thing, but using quantum elements to sense microgravity or changes in microgravity. So the example they give is uh, being able to create a gravimeter that could detect buried pipes and cables and other objects that you could only really find by digging. So obviously, the as a quantum element particle, whatever it is, moves through different substances and different materials, the gravity, the microgravity operating on it changes. So without needing to dig up a, uh, a piece of ground, you can sense what different materials are on the way down as this thing falls. Um, so yeah, it's, you, you hear quantum and you think all very sci-fi, but it also has very practical elements that you could use in everyday life. Well, when they looked at combining um, a, you know, particle physics with biology, they come up with this thing called the quantum robin. And um, not coming up with the thing, basically that's how <laughs> robins uh, navigate using quantum. And this is what they found out. So, yeah, maybe we do sense quantum changes anyway, and we're just not completely aware of it. I'm sure the robin's not aware that it's a a quantum sensor. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it can be quite useful, I guess. You see, Christmas cards, they'll take on a whole new meaning now. We'll have the quantum, quantum robins on. That's worth Googling. Okay. It is. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I think the other the other big one that got me was spatial computing. And that's because it seems like an extension of some very exciting technologies that we have going already. So things like VR and AR, which are very good at... Um, uh, digitally recreating something uh, out of nothing, but then this spatial computing, from what I understand, it can also recreate people, recreate locations, and it becomes much more um, real in terms of what people are able to do yeah, within we, a virtual space. And we have saw this a few years ago, that um, a lot of the innovation centers, um, research centers, and some end users were getting really into this whole... Uh, VR caves and things like that so they could do um, virtual design capabilities um, mm. and uh, yeah it, it worked to a level um, I think and a lot of people then just realized oh I've got a lovely great big TV screen that I can um, mount <laughs> mount my designs on <laughs> rather than trying to create the virtual 3d world and I think that's mm. when you start to see the limitations of some technologies um, because it becomes back to the whole adoption um, it's got to be it's got to be useful and it's got to be convenient for people to start to adopt these technologies and I think um, what we're saying here with spatial computing is it, it, it's going to start to move into that. It's all right. Okay, we could talk about digital twins and the concept of computer-aided design and all of those types of things and bringing other elements into it. But we still got to remember that the adoption of these technologies is very much based on some pretty uh, simple principles of that humans either like them or they don't. Mm. And that's kind of what we saw with the um, you know mobile phones and smartphones and why we're so addicted to them because they just so they do what we want and they're convenient um, yeah so yeah maybe this uh, maybe they're rebranding a little bit with the uh, spatial computing um, let's see if it can drive that technology a bit further mm. I'm excited to see it anyway yeah we'll keep an eye uh, uh, yeah so th I mean those were the things that grabbed me um, if you have any other points you'd like to look at on the list? No, I think we better better move on. 
I think so. Uh, we will, as always, we'll pop a link to uh, this PDF in our description so everyone can take a look at, uh, yeah, 10 very interesting technologies. Some I understood, some definitely want to understand. Um, but I think it's time we had a chat with our colleague Neil about GitOps. Yeah, we're going to get a bit um, a bit techy and a bit nerdy. So um apologize for people if they're not into their, their, their DevOps, but we're going to do a bit <laughs> of a dive into that world of uh, software um, production. I like to call it software manufacturing because there's lots of um, lots of synergies between physical manufacturing and software manufacturing, but it hasn't caught on as a phrase. So I'm just me who says it. We'll keep pushing it. We'll keep pushing it. Okay, uh, let's get him in. So we are joined now by Neil Clark. Hello, Neil. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. And I believe you are going to be talking with us about GitOps. Yep, one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so yeah, Neil is one of our uh, one of our super deluxe uh, um, architects and developers of our systems that we create. Um, so we thought it'd be quite good to. Um, share some of that knowledge rather than me talking about stuff that I don't know about. Let's get someone that actually knows what they're talking about <laughs> um, involved. <laughs> so um, I just set the scene a little bit, um, uh, Alex and Neil. So it's a very interesting area because when we started to get involved with um, cloud technology and things like that, one thing that was almost like a side effect of what we were doing is this whole uh, whole DevOps chain. Um, and the more we got involved with it and the more it's set up, the more kind of important it can become, really. Um, and the reason I say that is because it, it really does solve a lot of those problems, especially when businesses are looking to adopt um, cloud and cloud technologies um, and the fact that things change so often. Um, and therefore, when we have to look at DevOps, we have to think about that there's, there's a direct correlation between the speed of development, the way that things are being deployed, um, and therefore, when we produce those bits of software, what we're trying to do is meet the business requirements as quickly as we can, as safely as we can, and as secure, um, so we can get that value out to customers as quickly as possible. Uh, but one thing with everything we were discussing, we discussed it, um, uh, I think it was last week, when we talked about the kind of uh, brownfield site approach to technology, is mm. that software is always changing. It never stands still. Um, it doesn't wear out like hardware or, you know, it, it is always evolving and always changing. And therefore, unless you have... Um, a really good DevOps chain, and we'll talk a little bit more about what the difference between DevOps and um, GitOps is. Um, you can't do the continuous uh, uh, integration and continuous deployment approach. Um, so one thing we're really looking at is about how we develop and architect a well-structured DevOps chain that allows us to make updates to our um, microservices, our, mm -hmm. our infrastructure as code, containers, VMs, um, data migrations, all of that stuff that we have to do on a daily basis or what Neil and the team do on a daily basis. And it's got to be as frictionless as possible. Um, therefore, once we have all that definition there, we can, we can do amazing things like spin up whole environments within a matter of minutes. 
Uh, and all of that is based on the fact that we've got a really solid um, DevOps process uh, around what we're doing. Um, and what I think Neil's introduced to this is is a, a, a further concept around GitHub and, and uh, maybe, well, not GitHub, but GitOps, um, which is all a part of that same thing. So, um, yeah, let's uh, let's dive into that, Neil. And what's your what's your take on it? And where, where do we start with this subject of of GitHub's GitHub's GitOps? GitOps. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's far too many things we can use, isn't there? So yeah, so so GitHub's has come about because um, yeah, applications and services have moved to containers and and Kubernetes as a way to deliver them. Um, and with that, um, you're able to um, write the configuration that describes what those services look like in a declarative way. So instead of it being instructions that say, install this, install this, um, et cetera, you've got, I want it to be in this particular state and have these particular values, et cetera. Um, so yeah, in the past, you might've had a release process, which was a script, which was copy this application, it's settings, to this location and start it up. And now with Kubernetes, we've got this de declarative way of doing things. So you're saying, I want uh, version 1.2 of service X to run with a particular set of options. Um, so this means that we can write it in code, um, how this cluster of services should interact with each other, how they should be scaled, what resources, storage, et cetera, are available to them. Um, so with that, we could continue with the old patterns and, and take that code connect to a server, SSH onto it, run some commands and deploy it. But that is, isn't very traceable. Um, I mean, how do you keep track of what was run when, et cetera, and by who? Um, you could use continuous deployment processes to do it, which is obviously better. But once it's been run, how do you know that the those servers are still in that state after you run it? Things change, incidents happen. Um, maybe a, a live issue occurred and um, support had to manually make a change maybe that to scale a service or change a setting to to firefight an issue um this is really given that kind of real full traceability so it's, you know we talk about the development and of software and the infrastructure around it but to get that level of speed of change we need to understand the track and traceability of all of those elements all of those components uh, that go into what we're delivering and you know, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands, of individual cogs to this process, isn't there, that we're looking at? Yeah, and you need to be confident that the change you're making is correct and valid and not going to have any negative effects. So if you're not sure what state your system is in at the moment, how can you be sure that the change you're making is going to have the intended effect? So with GitOps, you're using a repository to store the state of the system and it maintains it in that system so you can be sure that all right my servers are you know they're this particular way so any change you make you can um you could use that same configuration to yes yeah, spin up a test server make test your changes out and you know it's been done on exactly the same configuration that's on your live servers and yeah you can be confident and with that you can yeah you can move faster because um yeah things are more stable and um yeah you just it's, it is literally about being co having confidence to make changes and do it frequently um, mm. 
And also with the ability to sometimes roll back and things like that, if there isn't something that, you know, sometimes things do slip through the net, but at least you can, you've got a known good that you can go back to. Um, and therefore there's a, there's a lot going on really when we now uh, release software um, to, to be able to track everything that we're doing. And when we do the deployment, also all the monitoring of it as well, including they said the scaling. How does it scale? How does it how does it uh, replicate itself, or whatever aspects we're looking for that to to occur? Um, and how does that differ? If you you know go back a few years when we used to be installing CDs to install programs, um, that CD was one version of a set of software, wasn't it? Um, that you'd install, and if there was a, a hot fix or a change to that, you know that was quite a a labor-intensive process, really, wasn't to get that change out to the customers of the system, and that's kind of the change we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. So things have moved on a lot since then. So um, yeah, obviously having to manually install something or go to site and put a CD in to to upgrade something is a painful process, to be honest. So um, obviously we moved past that, and then you know we've we've got on to yeah, you're running scripts and things on servers to upgrade things, which is slightly less painful, but again, isn't perfect. And humans are involved and humans inevitably make mistakes. So um, you want to cut cut that out as much as possible and automate where you can. So you've got these um, repeatable processes that um, create your environments and yeah, deploy your software in yeah, repeatable manners so you can do it as often as you want as soon as you've got an update, you can um, get that tested, get it committed, and um, and push that out through um, yeah, a solid process. So um, GitOps kind of helps bring the, the configuration side of that in. So we've kind of had that for applications for quite a while now. So um, as a developer, you would be managing your changes via Git, um, making code changes, creating pull requests, which would get reviewed by other developers um, and then they might be um, gated as well so they would have um, automated tests that would run and that would cover the, the application side of things but there's also the um, the operations and the configuration side of things so um, like we mentioned like how many what resources you allocate to a, a service um, what settings um, how should it scale etc how should it how should it um, react if it hits a, a failure scenario etc and what GitOps does is that brings that into the the same kind of process as you would do with an application. So with any of those changes, you would follow the same process. You would make a pull request again to say, right, I want to change um, this setting on this particular service. Um, and yeah, you'd make that request. Someone would look at it and go, yeah, that's a, a sensible thing to do. Uh, I approve that. Um, and then again, you could run um, tests on that as well to, to validate that that is um, the valid syntax, um, it's a, it falls within the bounds that we're expecting. So say you're making a resource request and you're changing that to something that was, I was only requesting um, one gig before for resource, but now I've made a mistake and I put 10 gigs or something. You could put some checks in to automatically validate that. So you, you know, you can be confident again that you're not going to um, damage the system. Um, and that's... 
Yeah, so what what kind of tools are we talking about that people might be familiar with or what, what kind of tools do we use in this whole um, process? Yeah, so the main the main players would be Flux and Argo. So Flux are the people that, well, it's their product that was the first one. So they, they run by, it was created by a company called Weaveworks, which came up with the idea of GitOps. Um, and that was back in a few years ago, 2017-ish. Um, and that was kind of out of necessity, as in there was a case of there must be a better way of doing this, basically. Um, <laughs> so they, yeah, they created this product um, and then they, they built a company around that. But um, the product itself is open source and Argo is open source again as well. And um, yeah, it's starting to come a bit more mainstream. So GitHub are talking about it a lot more. Um, AWS are working with a few companies um, to bring it more into their sort of workflow as well because obviously they have got yeah their own kubernetes platform and if they can make things easier for people to use their platform and manage things it's obviously um good for them as well so they're they're getting involved as well um yeah and the, what these tools are they're basically you install um an operator which lives within your cluster and then it it sits there and it looks it's just watching your git repository looking for changes to say so you make a change to your Git repository, it will keep checking that and it will spot it and go, oh, there's something something new to do. So there's like a, um, you might have added a new service that you want to deploy. So it will, it will see that, it will grab that change and then it will, it will action it and it will put the cluster into the same state as what you've got in your Git repository. So if you've got seven different services in your Git repository um, set up, it will mirror that and set it up so you've got seven different services um, in your actual cluster with exactly the same settings. Um, and yeah, it'll just basically mirror it and it'll, it'll keep it in that state. So like I alluded to earlier, if someone went and changed something on the server, within a few minutes, it would spot that and go, actually, your state's different to what you intended it to be. So then it'll put it back into that state and everything's back to how it should be. It's quite amazing, really, how far it's come on, isn't it? I mean, like I said, we're only talking 2017 uh, type of thing, which isn't that long ago. Um, yet these technologies are almost invaluable now for um, our approaches of that combining of your, your, your infrastructure definition and all of the service required for your infrastructure and the nano service uh, approach of cloud technologies as well. Um, it's hard to see things ever going backwards really is it <laughs> no you can't you can't take it away now uh, the, yeah <laughs> the box has been opened but um yeah i mean once you get to the point where you you're you're looking after multiple environments um things start to get complicated so um yeah this is where tools kind of emerge from that because um yeah there's there's difficult problems there and people are using them every day so um yeah, these sort of tools and these ideas of, of like GitOps um, emerge out of um, out of necessity, really. Um, I mean, you imagine if we didn't have them, the amount of uh, you could call it architectural debt in the true sense of the word. The amount of architectural debt we're having to be managing manually would just mean that we'd never make any or very little progress going forward, would we? Exactly. Good. Spend all of your time yeah looking after things rather than developing new features and um, yeah delivering value. You'd just be yeah, um, keeping things up rather than moving them forwards. So I one thing, a, yeah, 
another example of that automation frees up the human element to be more creative and to to push things forward whilst you you leave the it's essentially busy work keeping an eye on everything have it has it changed how has it changed does it need to be put back to how it was yeah. allows developers like you to spend more time developing exactly yeah at the end of the day these are these are tools that are, are meant to make our job easier um yeah it's like you say free us up to to um yeah work on the more exciting things if that makes sense and one it thing does. we've been looking at one thing we've been considering also is that with the adoption of cloud by some of the industry and large manufacturers um really they need to also consider this devops approach as a part of that as well because okay there's one thing producing SaaS applications and services like we do but ultimately any infrastructure that's based on a cloud or edge approach really needs this kind of infrastructure in place, doesn't it, to be able to facilitate um, a, a cloud infrastructure within any environment. Yeah, I think I, I definitely agree. I think you've alluded to it before, saying once um, something exists, it, it's going to change. So um, you want to make sure you can, you can handle that um, easily and swiftly. So, um, yeah, nothing stands still. It's not like you develop something and... Um, that's it. It's finished. There's always something new that needs to be done to it. So you've always got to be thinking about, um, yeah, how you manage that and how you keep keep that moving forwards with with new fixes and and new features. So yeah, great stuff. Um, I don't know if you've got anything on that, Alex, but I think uh, that was a good session. Hopefully, um, not too technical. How how did you find it? I, I I am, as I've said before, very much a newcomer to the technical side of things. And I want to say you lost me at GitOps, but I did get most of it. So, yeah, fascinating stuff. And thank you so much for joining us, Neil. That's no problem. Happy to be here. All right. Cheers, Neil. All right. Cheers. Staff. Cheers, guys. So here we are in the interview portion of the Atlas podcast. We're joined by Darren Williams of the Welding Institute and the University of Lancaster. If you'd like to introduce yourself, Darren. Hey, thank you for that. So yeah, my name's Darren Williams. Currently, I've got two roles. One of them is at TWI, which is the Welding Institute, and that is a research and technology organization based in the UK, Cambridge. My role there is to lead a digital team. We focus on um, enabling digital technologies, enhancing welding solutions. And the second of my two roles is with the Lancaster University. At the Lancaster University, I am the professor and director of the Joining 4.0 Innovation Centre. And there again, very similar to my role at TWI, I'm leading and developing a group focused on Industry 4, aiming to bring digital technologies through into industry. Very good. That was very precise. I like that, Darren. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we've we've known each other a little while. A lot of people keep asking me what I do, so it's kind of um, <laughs> you've got the patter down. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> so you, you mentioned a couple of things there, Darren: um, welding and joining. Um, yeah. How do you differentiate the two? Because you know, I know that uh, TWI has a long history and. Uh, um, uh, and tries to define a little bit about what you mean by those two terms. Um, maybe they're the same, but how do you how do you define them? 
Yeah, they are somewhat the same, but at TWI we have um, tens of different welding technologies. So, so these welding processes are basically joining two bits of materials, metals, composites, etc., together. Um, from technologies such as friction welding, where we're applying a high forces and oscillating or rotating objects to join them together. If we have um, laser welding, where there's a laser beam joining components together, laser cutting as well, uh, methods of friction stir welding, where we're using a tool tip, which rotates and traverses materials to join those together. Um, a whole whole raft of, of different ones. But yeah, they are welding and joining is one of the two um similar to, similar yeah and and you know maybe this is a naive question but i'll ask it anyway you'd have thought we'd have cracked welding by now surely we've been doing it for a while so what what are the big challenges and what is the innovation in the welding area well if if people haven't cracked the welding they should come to us twi because we are expert <laughs> welding technology <laughs> i lined you up there there you go <laughs> yeah so um we have got a lot of knowledge and know-how around those different technologies um the main challenges come from uh during the process the defects which can be generated so if you're not applying the right um forces torques currents, voltages, etc., energies into the system, we're not going to get a good quality uh, joint or bond. Therefore, you can have um, weaker uh, welded joints. So we, our experts around TWI, understand what uh, parameters the process should be. And part of our group and team's knowledge at J4IC and at TWI, the digital aspects are to help us further hone in those aspects so we have additional sensors and instrumentation on welding systems to help us digitally digitally get the right um, variables to ultimately get good solid correct bonds um, and, and one of those projects is aptly named i think um with, with zero weld isn't it i mean this is uh really about trying to get down to zero defects so there are still defects in welding systems and you know they're used in many different um industries aren't they everything from automotive to making submarines or whatever uh, or even in the new battery technologies there's a whole set of applications that are used aren't they correct Just... correct so the project that you mentioned weld zero that's the innovate uk project uh, we we managed to win that under the made smarter banner um last back end of last year we submitted that proposal found out we were successful earlier this year and actually started the project in april this year so that one is a consortium made up of twi ats um we've got end users in that lango rock bmw sub c7 and um the aim of the project is to create zero defect welding demonstrators so each of the end users have a particular type of, of challenge around their their welding and we at twi have uh, test beds at cambridge where we can uh, 
instrument up systems, simulate the end user's challenge, and ultimately make that system create product with zero defects. So again, how we do that, we, we're getting the digital data off the system, analyzing that data, and ensuring when it feeds back, when the system feeds back, that it's performing and producing parts correctly, correct, correct. therefore reducing the need for NDT and um, other sorts of uh, testing of that world. Yeah, so the non-destructive testing aspect, but some of that uh, testing feeds back into it, doesn't it? With, with understanding if something is defect and feeding into those algorithms, we need to know both good and bad, don't we? We need to know when those anomalies occur, so we can actually then look at the kind of process parameters that we're talking about, and we go, oh, okay, that one goes out of of alignment when that defect occurs and therefore we can start to create those correlations between all of that information and stuff and that's more on your um digital analytics side which is more reliant to lancaster university isn't it i think correct correct so we've got um, a research associate working on that project and his specific role on that is to pull out the data, and I believe he's working very closely with ATS, pulling out the data from the system and defining artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithms to effectively analyze that data and then feed back any flags or warnings or adapt the process in real time, ultimately to get away from um, creating defects. Um, Alex, the other day we were talking, weren't we, to the uh, one of the marketing companies about um, this kind of approach, and uh, it nearly blew their mind, didn't it? I think. <laughs> I mean, it blew my mind as well. I mean, there's so there's so many layers I've discovered since starting in this area. Um, that yeah, it's it's. I think you mentioned it at the start. Welding, in my mind, pre-engineering world was a very simple thing, but then it's oh. There are all of these different versions and all of these different ways of doing it, then all of these different ways of testing it, then improving it that's just going on constantly. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, when you start looking at the efficiencies and um, throughput and, you know, we, we're just at a different level to where we used to be with the types of sensors that we can mm. retrofit onto existing kit. Um, and then using that sensors because sensors before were very much about controlling the machinery if it was automated in some way sensor form they weren't always there to improve the quality of what's going on so yeah. that's a part of it isn't it darren Fit, fitting new sensors to be able to understand that world that even sensors that we ourselves can't you know we, we've got hands and eyes and ears um, yeah. but there's a whole world of sensing that we as humans can't even um, understand and we just have to interpret don't we definitely definitely and, and i guess with our with my two roles twi and, and the innovation center at lancaster the main reason it's come about and we've been successful in winning various projects is because companies uk around the world they want to utilize these digital technologies to for basically three main reasons to make their systems more productive so get more parts um, through the through the shop floor on the shop floor and delivered through there to their customer to increase quality of those parts which are delivered as well. So as I mentioned earlier, trying to get things right and right the first time, and as well to reduce reduce overall cost. So cost on 
defects, um, costs on waste, wasted resource, things like that. So, so we definitely help industries to achieve those three goals. Mm. And talking about sensing a little bit, talk about the uh, the other uh, project we're involved with um, together, which is nice. Um, not limited. We've done a few projects together yeah. now, um, <laughs> uh, but it's nice. Like I said, it's nice now that we're providing that kind of digital platform and looking at cloud technologies and different types of data analytics approaches and edge technologies and all that type of thing. Um, and combining that physical world, which is really what the TWI is, isn't it? That's the physical world. And then you've got the the virtual or the AI world with Lancaster University. And in a way, ATS fits between those two things where we're trying to join the physical world to the virtual world and make that um, transition of data as seamless as possible as well. Um, and with uh, 5GEM, we're taking that to another level, aren't we? Bringing 5G networking into the whole thing. Yes, yes, the 5G project is a very exciting one. Again, that started in April this year, um, one under the DCMS uh, banner. And that one has end users Ford and VFE. And basically what we're doing there is utilizing the 5G technology. So we've got 5G uh, infrastructure in Cambridge and one of the end users has 5G infrastructure at their sites. And what we can do is basically connect up the two disparate facilities. So information can be shared, data can be shared, uh, machine performance, uh, quality of parts, remote monitoring, um, supporting maintenance. It, things can be shared without actually being there. And the, the good thing about 5G, it allows data to be transmitted uh, at at utilizing the lower the faster speeds from the lower latencies. So if we're looking at a a real time uh, machine or sensor which is generating a lot of data, that data can be sent quickly and at a high bandwidth so that we can online offline analyze that and feedback in real time. So it's it's um it's really good that we're starting to look at these new technologies and see how they can benefit our industries. And, and then they're private networks as well, which is the big difference with 5G as well, isn't it? Because before 4G, you've very much used in the public domain, um, but the level of security as well as the performance of the 5G allows, you know, two private networks to talk together, but yes. also to keep that level of uh, security around it, which is... There's, there's so many different facets to the 5G. I think I think we're at the infancy of it, and I know that the uh, network providers are looking. They've got already kind of versions of 5G planned to come out. But it, we are, it, we are, and, and even ourselves, we're no expert in 5G. But given we've started to look at it, use it, and see the benefits of it, it's a really attracting prospect on what's to come. And I think over the next two, three, four, five years, as that technology develops even more as you said there'll be a whole um, ream of further benefits that we can utilize across the manufacturing space we've done so yeah what, what's the future stuff what's what's coming up what's the uh, if you had to predict um where the technology is going and what you want to get involved with uh, uh wherever it's at in the future um i'd say for the future i'm very biased so of course the future will have a lot of digital technologies um, mm -hmm. digital technologies so referring to data analytics being a big part 
within a lot of systems, the machine learning. So we, we've got one or two research associates focused solely on developing machine learning algorithms. So they will become experts in data science for manufacturing. Therefore, that will play a big part. Um, connectivity. So as I mentioned earlier, utilizing the 5G and how that develops over the years, that will play a bigger and bigger part, bringing in the robustness, the security, the fast data transfer, etc. Um, so basically, analytics and wider data connectivities, I think, will be play a big part in the future. Fascinating. So, Alex, how how's that for you? How's the uh, the world of welding? It's, I know we, it's we had a discussion the other day, wasn't it? About someone said, um, um, additive, yeah, "There's additive manufacturing and there's and there's welding." And I say, "Well, actually, additive manufacturing is welding in some regards." Sort of, yeah. <laughs> um, well, the no, micro scale, we still, even though it's added, called additive manufacturing at the micro scale, we still joining molecules molecules together so uh, yeah it's definitely still welding welding and joining yeah still bonding two materials yeah amazing um and that uh, i think you're right just the the ever ongoing march of digital technologies and how they're affecting everything is uh it's just something to to marvel at and something to keep an eye on which i'm sure you will darren as you work Right in there. <laughs> and we'll continue to make things easier. I think I think it's about yeah. Some of this is about defining those those data models and making things more easy to connect and to talk to each other. So the more we go down this path, the more things become plug and play and reconfigurable and all these types of things. And uh, um, uh, still a long way to go, but it's always exciting to do specific use cases. Um, uh, and solve those particular problems because at the heart of it that's what we like doing is solving problems so um, um yeah but thank you very much darren uh very interesting as always um and we uh, enjoy continue working with the twi um and uh lancaster university on all future projects so uh excellent yes thank you again martin and alex great session and yep look forward to working with ats on, on upcoming projects Thank you so All much. Right. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. See you soon. Cheers. Right. So that's it for another episode of the Atlas podcast. And that's it for the Atlas podcast for the year. Hey, we made it to the end of the year. That's the main thing there, Alex. <laughs> we did, just about. <laughs> we did. And we snuck an extra one in because you weren't quite expecting this one, were you? Wasn't expecting it, no. But uh, yeah, happy to have it. Mm. So uh, as is tradition, I've got one last quotation for 2020. This one has been attributed to everyone from Niels Bohr to Mark Twain, as we've discussed before, but I think it's actually most likely an old Danish proverb. Mm -hmm. And it goes, it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. Yes, very apt, very apt for the time we live in, hey? But uh, I think so. Who knows what 2021 will hold for us, hey? But um, we'll keep plowing on. Yes, and remaining positive until evidence to the contrary comes in. <laughs> All right, cheers, Martin. All right, have a good uh, have a good break, and I'll see you the other side. We will do. See you next year. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. If you're looking for more information on the world of Atlas, or if you have any questions at all, please head on over to weareatlas.com and let us know your thoughts.